Wagner was a glorious sunset mistaken for a rosy dawn. Claude Debussy on Wagner. Running the Bayreuth Festival on a strictly traditional lines after Wagner's death, Cosima, his wife, often shackled independent singers. One Elizabeth wished to open Tannhäuser's second act by running into the Hall of Song with her arms upraised as if overcome with joy. Cosima said no. But word got out that the singer was planning to do it her way at the performance. Came the night, as she raised her arms, they stopped dead short at the waist. Cosima had sewed up her sleeves of her dress. Welcome to my Super Title Life, an ongoing broadcast about my experiences working for the San Diego Opera Chorus for the season 2008. This is episode four, Four Songs and a Funeral. The second performance of Tannhäuser merely served to bring out in still bolder relief the talent and courage of the singers, who had to answer in person for the sins of the composer. Journal de Deva, March 1861. There isn't often anything in a Wagner opera that one wouldn't call by such a violent name as acting. As a rule, all you would see would be a couple of people, one of them standing, the other catching flies. Of course, I do not really mean that he would be catching flies. I only mean that the usual operatic gestures, which consist in reaching first one hand out into the air and then the other, might suggest the sport I speak of. Mark Twain, The Shrine of St. Wagner. Well, welcome to this week's show. Um, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about... Um, some of the things that are going on both in the rehearsals and kind of just to wrap up the whole storyline because we really haven't gone into Act 3 much. Um, see, let's, let's, let's talk about quickly what's gone on in Act 1 and 2. Um, Act 1, we had, um, it opens up and there's a delightful little orgiastic uh, dance sequence. It's the ballet that opens up Tannhäuser. Um, and then uh, we find Venus, and um, who's the pre-Christian goddess of love, and uh, Tannhäuser, who has been in her magical abode and under her spell for some time now, partaking of the flesh. And he eventually just says he wants no more of it, and he wants to leave. And they have an argument, and he eventually calls on the Virgin Mary for absolution of his sins, and at that moment the spell is broken, and he is cast out of Venusburg. So we find him in a valley, and he happens to be in this really lush valley in Wartburg, and there's a young boy who's playing um, a flute or a uh, some sort of woodwind instrument, and he's uh, extolling the beautiful lush day in May that is taking place. And in come some pilgrims on their way to Rome to absolve their sins, and they're singing and dreary minor keys to demonstrate their longing for absolution of their awful and terrible existence on this earth. So at the time Tannhäuser um, was trying to figure out what he wants to do with himself, his uh, friends, the Meistersingers, end up showing up on the horizon and they see him and immediately rush towards him because they haven't seen him in some time and they all want to know what he's been up to and he's rather coy about it because he knows exactly how they would respond. And uh, so they convince him to go back up to the castle, and he tries to beg off, and they said, no, you really should come. And 
Then they, one of them, Wolfram, his best friend probably uh, out of all of them, turns to him and reminds him of um, Elizabeth, the Landgraf's uh, niece, and Tannhäuser immediately remembers her and decides that's who he has to go see. So then we get to Act 2, and it opens with a really lovely song by Elizabeth in the Great Hall. And Tannhäuser is, uh, makes his appearance with Wolfram. And if you kind of watch it, uh, when we get it staged, you'll kind of see how Wolfram already displays that he has somewhat of a, holds somewhat of a torch for Elizabeth, um, if even silently. And it's staged that way in our production. It's quite clear that he is the third person in this little triangle. He's also the one who gets the short end of the stick, as I said before. And, um... Tannhäuser and Elizabeth have this little song remembering the old days, and then he rushes off because, uh, actually, to be quite honest, I'm not sure why he rushes off, but he rushes off, and Elizabeth waves to him as he leaves, and then all of the dignitaries show up in court, and they're all excited and all abuzz because they've heard the Landgraf's niece, who has not made an appearance in court in some time, is going to be there today. So they're all excited, and they hear the Landgraf has something planned, and so there it heightens the excitement even more. And then the Meistersingers show up, which are the singing knights, and they are the rock stars of uh, this show. Um, everybody just, you know, with each one that makes an entrance, the excitement just builds and builds and builds. It's like a very uh, a string being pulled taut as, you know, as time goes on. And uh, by the time Tannhäuser makes his appearance, all hell practically breaks loose because they've not seen him in ages, and he was one of the most famous singers they ever had. So they're just all aghast. It's like medieval idol, you know. And uh, so the Landgraf then decides there's going to be a uh, song contest, and the winner um, shall get whatever prize is uh, that his niece uh, determines that they should have. Well, it's all kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge that we all kind of realize that what Elizabeth would ask for, and she's betting on Tannhäuser winning, um, is that she's going to ask for his hand, and that she will marry him. So that's kind of what's all underlying this whole thing. Well, all of the Meistersingers get up, and the, and the subject matter that the Landgraf has chosen is, um, obviously enough, about love. So each one of the Meistersingers... Uh, is supposed to take their turn, and we start off with Wolfram, and uh, he sings a really lovely song, and uh, about love, and it's very, very, um, oh, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, euphoric and very idealistic, uh, almost virginal point of view about love, very lofty, and uh, he compares the evening star and its brilliance and brightness and you know and all that wonderful stuff to Elizabeth. Um, and interestingly enough, um, you need to understand that these characters in, in Wagner's Tannhäuser are all historical characters. These people actually did live. And in fact, Elizabeth, the Landgraf's niece, actually went on to become Saint Elizabeth in Germany. Um, so she is revered, quite revered. And in fact, that was one of the things that caused problems with Tannhäuser and with Wagner in general, is that he would often do what Walt Disney did and he would bastardize um, original works and uh, using original people or you know actual people and, and he would just bend things which is why we have the travesty that is Pocahontas but I digress anyways so um, 
we have the song contest and it's starting to go and after Wolfram sings, Tannhäuser gets up and he says, wow, that was really great and you know, and what a great song. Wow, you're a great guy and great singer and blah, 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 blah. And everybody kind of agrees with him. And then uh, they, Langrav rings out and says, well, Walter will go next. And so Walter sings a very beautiful song as well. And Tannhäuser gets up and kind of challenges him on it and says, yeah, well, that's a great song, but boy, you don't know anything about love. And every time Tannhäuser gets up, it's kind of interesting because each one of the, the songs that is played by the individual Meistersingers, it's done with a harp, and it's really very lovely, very, very pretty pieces. And then any time Tannhäuser gets up and gets stirred, you hear begin to hear the very, very, um, we are now calling in the uh, cast, the witch music of Venusberg. And you hear all this, the strings just start to go kind of all fiddly and, and it gets, you gets everybody kind of all stirred and, and people start getting anxious and stuff. And every time Tannhäuser sings, you kind of hear this theme come out. And like I said, with Tannhäuser and with Wagner in general, the themes play a big part as to psychologically where you are in the story. So every time Tannhäuser gets up, you hear this witch music going on and you kind of know, oh, something's coming up. Well, he actually, uh, when he challenges Walter uh, in his song and says, you know, you don't know anything about love. I know a lot about love. And he starts to sing this song about love, and he actually starts to get quite carnal in it. Uh, and he looks directly at Elizabeth as he sings it. And, of course, she starts to get all hot and bothered. And that's when you kind of know, huh, hey, she's not all uh, pious as she tries to make out to be. But anyways, um, so uh, about the time that he starts to do this, the crowd starts to get really anxious and says, hey, now, wait a minute. And uh, Bitterall stops him all and says, I'll answer. So he is probably the oldest Meister singer that's been around. He's been around for quite some time, very well respected. And he gets up and he kind of responds with what he thinks the crowd would want to hear. And it's quite true. We do. We all agree with him and think he is dead on the money that he needs to tell Tannhäuser to behave himself and get back in line. Well, Tannhäuser will have nothing of it. And he challenges Bitterolf. And then uh, he tells him that all of them are a bunch of idiots and that he knows what love is all about. And he sings this very erotic song about uh, love in a carnal sense and about what he's done in Venusburg. And the moment he mentions that, the equivalent, the only thing I can probably say is if you were in the middle of a great mass in Rome with the Pope presiding and you called on Satan himself, that's kind of the way it's received in the hall. Um, that he has literally called on hell itself to make an appearance in the great hall. So everybody gets all into twist. The women run off as if scandalized beyond all belief, but you know they just ran outside the castle and couldn't stop gossiping. But they leave, and uh, the men get all riled, and they pull out their swords, and we sing a line that basically says, we will moisten our blades with his blood. So it's very clear we're about to run him through. And just as it gets really taunt, and I'm telling you, the staging of this is really well done. Um, as one of the performers in it, I really kind of like, I really enjoy this part because it really kind of gets to a point where it's all these blades come at uh, Tannhäuser and we're all focused on him and they're all raised, ready to pounce. And Elizabeth walks up and stops us with the note from hell that comes out of nowhere. And when she does this, we all kind of freeze, and it's dead silence for about five seconds on stage. And you get to see the whole picture as it stands, with all the guys really angry, and she's got her arms stretched out to stop everyone. And there's Tannhäuser in the middle, about to be run through by all these blades. Julius Caesar, Caesar should have had it just as good. Anyway, so we get to... Um, here, Elizabeth, and eventually she tells them, look, no matter what pain you can inflict upon him, uh, you know, 
it's nothing compared to the, the to what he's just done to me, how he's hurt me in front of everybody. So, and yet, even so, I shall pray for him and for his absolution from his sins. And, of course, she goes down on me when she says this. And the moment she does, all of the knights are immediately shamed um, because they, you know, here they are running to her defense only to have her say that's not the way to do things. And um, they see her go on bended knee and it really causes them great shame because they hold her in such high esteem and for her to become so um basically makes everyone feel ashamed that uh you know they don't want to see something that they hold as lofty and idealistic and they put her on a pedestal and here she is taking herself down off that pedestal becoming very real and very human and that kind of shames them so Tannhäuser feels horrible at this point. He actually does have an ounce of retribution in him. And he begins to really repent. And finally the Landgraf comes up with an idea. He says, you know, I know villagers, pilgrims are going through our town on their way to Rome to absolve their sins. You need to go and do that as well. And we as knights all agree with him and say, yeah, you do. You need to go with them. And about the time when he's starting to resist and we're saying you need to do this we get to a really powerful moment in in the chorus and the uh lead singers and which i have to tell you um it's a really good thing that if you guys decide to go see this because it's really quite a rare treat almost all the cast are true wagnerians these are people who are specialists within the opera field of doing strictly wagner and germanic operas and you usually don't get a chance to see this kind of combination of singers uh, outside of Germany very often. So not only is Tannhäuser great um, because you're getting a chance to see something that has been produced in almost 40 years, but secondly, you're getting to see with a cast that are, these are the specialists of the field. So really quite uh, amazing, and I highly recommend that you see that part of it just for that reason alone. But anyways, um, so the Landgraf says, you know, you need to do this. And about the time we get into this argument between all the principles of the cast and the knights, which uh, I'm one of, we all, you know, pull our blades and are about to go at it again. And just as we get to that part, all of a sudden you hear the pilgrims sing the chorus and it's the women, they're off stage. And it's almost angelic in its sound. And it's reminiscent of what the men sang earlier that you see in Act 1 where we cross, walk across stage in the 90 seconds that I get on stage in Act 1. And we sing the same, and they sing the exact same words, the exact same melody, but it's in female voices, so it's much more angelic sounding. And it sounds very far away and distant. Um, and it's really kind of a nice counterpoint to what's going on on stage, which is so tense. And so finally he says, you know what? I'll go. I'll go to Rome. I'll get absolved, and I'll leave. So... That's the end of Act 2. Act 3 begins, and we are back in Wartburg. And it's kind of interesting what happens here. Um, in the beginning, you hear the orchestral introduction, and you hear Tannhäuser's pilgrimage to Rome. We hear the themes that, that are associated with the pilgrims. Then we hear the ones that Elizabeth sang with uh, her prayers, and, and then you hear the evil witch music of Venus, you know, and I, of course I say evil witch, and I, I you know, I'm not really going there, but uh, that's a whole nother discussion and a whole nother show. But I mean, you know, this kind of um, uh, profane kind of music. And uh, then you hear some jubilant music as well, which is from the Great Hall. And then the curtain opens. In, um, it's the same setting as you saw in Act One, except that it's actually, it's later in the year. It's now like fall it's uh, autumn and it's cold it's colder than it was earlier because we were in may in act one and um it's got more solemn 
kind of coloring and stuff, and it's and you can tell it's at dusk. It's towards night. And Elizabeth is at prayer in front of the statue of the Virgin that you saw in Act One. And she sings, and Wolfram appears, and you know he sings admiration of her being so pious and praying to the Virgin Mary continuously since Tannhäuser left, praying for his soul. And you know he sings a little bit about his love, and you can kind of really tell this guy really loves her, and he's never said a word all this whole time. And personally, I think if he had said something, things might have gone better for Elizabeth because the poor woman, you know, she just kind of really gets wrecked all to hell in, in this third act. And um, just as she's uh, finishing her song, then uh, the and she's despairing over the fact that she's not heard from Tannhäuser. She has no idea what's been going on all these months that he's been gone, and uh, obviously in this pilgrimage to Rome. You see the pilgrims coming back joyously, triumphant. And it's actually interesting because we sing the same melodies that you hear in Act 1 where we're singing in a minor key where it gives you that longing or that like that uh, distressful feeling. And in the third act, we sing it in a major key, which it sounds a lot like the original that you heard earlier, but it's got more of a joyous sound to it. And that's because we're singing it in a, in a slightly modified key so that way it makes it seem more joyous. But it's the same melodies that you kind of hear. Okay, to kind of explain a little bit about what I mean um, between the Pilgrim's choruses, it kind of gives you a little bit of an audio sample to kind of understand what I'm talking about here. I'm going to play you a little bit of the Pilgrim's Chorus from Act 1, and you're going to hear it in a certain key and a certain sound, a certain way. And then uh, we'll come back and I'll explain to you that you're going to be listening to the... Um, Pilgrim's Chorus again, but this is after they're coming back from Rome. So let's hear the first part where it's them going to Rome and they're lamenting about all their sins and they're weighted down with the worries of all their sins and they want to be absolved. So here's that part. And now we're back. So then the next part is, I'm going to play you, is the Act 3 where they're coming back from Rome. And you'll hear it's the same theme, but there's a very key different phrase. And I'm going to play them side by side as soon as we hear it the first time through. So here it is in Act 3, the more joyous kind of sound, but it's the same melody that you're hearing in Act 1. So here's that part of the song. Okay, now, to compare the two, let's listen to the key phrase that I'll show you where there is a difference in what they call the minor mode versus the major mode. Minor tends to create a longing, a, a desire. Uh, um, it's more of a haunting kind of sound. It's usually what you hear like in uh, the old horror movies back in the day. Um, you used to hear this kind of sound. In fact, um, 
famous movies like Halloween and those that use the piano and you hear that little tinkling going on on the piano, but it sounds kind of eerie and creepy. That's because it's written in a minor key and it tends to cause that. We want to resolve to a major sound and uh, having something in a minor key kind of makes us feel uncomfortable because it's almost there, but not quite. So it tends to pull on you emotionally. So here's, again, the minor key in Act 1. And now here's the same melody phrase, different words, and you're going to hear the change in major key. I hope you catch it. And you'll hear how the two are very different from each other. So here's the other one. Then I'm going to play them right after I play them side by side, one at a time here. Now I'm going to play them side by side right after that. So you can hear the two same phrases side by side and hear exactly what they sound like. Okay, now I hopefully that kind of explained it for you. So you can kind of hear the subtle differences in the music. And this is how Wagner uses music psychologically when he's building these operas. And in fact, a lot of composers use the same kind of tonal qualities and chord progressions that actually evoke emotions out of you. And, um, you know, Richard Gere's line in Pretty Woman that he says to Julia Roberts is quite uh, apropos. When you hear opera... Um, you either love it or you hate it. There is no in-between, and it's absolutely true. But what they tried to get across to you is that the, the music is so passionate, it should really evoke those emotions in you. Uh, like all art, it's meant for you to think and feel, and that's kind of what this does in that sense. That Wagner's trying to show you that when the pilgrims go, they're moaning and, and really going out of their way to, to say, oh, you know, we're stopping off and praying here because we're so terrible, our lives are so rotten, blah. And then when they come back from Rome at the end of it, though, they're skipping and jumping. You know, it's a miracle that some of these programs aren't doing backflips on their way home. So you get kind of that same melody, but it's a different tone. It's a different chord progression. So it, it's supposed to bring out the resolution, the resolvement that we've been absolved of all of our sins. And now our lives are much happier. So I um, hope you got that out of that. Um, I'm going to try and kind of do those whenever I have these comparisons in these operas uh, in my podcast. I'm, I'm going to kind of try and show those to you guys so you get kind of a, a general flavor as to what the composer is trying to do to evoke those emotions. So we come in and we extol the wonders of having completed our pilgrimage. We're all happy because this is the last stop on our way back to our homes. And, you know, we're going to be able to see our families. And, oh, this is, life is great and yada, yada, yada. Well, while we're singing that, Elizabeth just freaks and decides she has to run amongst all of us to try and hopefully find Tannhäuser. And then she's, as we leave, she's thrown into complete despair that he's not in there with us. 
So obviously something happened to him, and she doesn't know what it is. Of course, this is before the internet, so I guess she couldn't just look it up and Google him. But anyways, um, so she, you know, starts to have a really sad, powerful moment lamenting over the fact that she doesn't, she's never seen, you know, she hasn't seen him. And she sings a um, lovely song, and Wolfram sings a lovely song called Evening Star. Um, and it's actually, you know, it, it, if it's done right, and the gentleman who is singing it is just phenomenal. So I think you guys will really like it. But um, he sings this lovely aria. And then Tannhäuser staggers on stage, and he's a mess. Um, but just before he arrives, Elizabeth, you know, goes running off to go to uh, Shrine of the Virgin Mary, uh, another one that they have near the castle, and she's going to pray for him there. So she leaves, and she doesn't see that he when he arrives. And he tells Wolfram that he uh, is off to sink the grotto of, the, of Venus again. And, you know, Wolfram says, you know, you really can't do that. That's, you know, that's just silly. Why are you doing this? And Tannhäuser explains that when he went to Rome, he did get to see the Pope. And he explained what his sins were. And the Pope said, you could no sooner be absolved than if my staff sprouted leaves. Um, so you can kind of see the end of the play coming just in that line alone. So um, he uh, he says, you know what, you know, basically the Pope's told him, you know, you'll be absolved when hell freezes over, you know, that kind of line. And so he's thrown in despair and he says, you know, screw it. I'm going to go back and I'm going to, you know, go back to my evil wild ways. There's nothing for me. You know, nobody's going to absolve me. I can't have Elizabeth, therefore. So I'm gone. I'm going to go back and live what life I can live. That's at least, you know, reasonably happy. Well, Wolfram tries to talk him out of it. Uh, and then for no apparent reason other than, you know, uh, it's, uh, in fact, there's a comment in um, Wagner Without Fear about Elizabeth uh, in this section of it. Elizabeth's death is a bit convenient, dramatically speaking. Indeed, it is astounding how often Wagner's heroines just seem to expire for no real reason beyond plot resolution or misogyny. Elsa and Lohengrin, Isolde, Kundry and Parsifal all just sort of drop dead at the end of their respective operas. At least, the hero dies the same time in this opera. And it's true. What actually happens is, is that they bring in a funeral beer, and you see the pilgrims coming back in, and they all have candles now, and Elizabeth is dropped dead of heart being heartbroken. That's the only kind of ex reason we can come up with. She's heartbroken the fact that Tannhäuser never returned, and so he's abandoned her, so she dies. You know, she just kind of eh, and keels over. And so they put her on a beer, and they bring her in, and we come in with our little candles. And we sing this really sad part of the song, um, you know, about her and, and I'm extolling, you know, the fact that she's now in heaven and she's beyond all this and everything. <clears throat> and um, so then um, at, the, at the sight of it, uh, Tannhäuser just loses himself and just thinks, oh, you know, and, and he calls on Venus. And this is where Venus actually makes a reappearance from Act 1. She makes a reappearance in Act 3. And she says, fine, come back to me. Come, come. And she keeps saying, oh, come. And he, uh, he reaches for her. And then just as he is about to give up all hope, the um, young boys have returned from Rome in the pilgrimage and they brought the Pope's staff. Now, I don't know how they pulled that one off. But they bring the Pope's staff back, and it is indeed sprouting leaves. It is growing leaves on this wooden staff. So, therefore, Tannhäuser is absolved. And in the last throes of his breathing, he finally eschews Venus, and she disappears again. And 
Uh, he then sees that he's been absolved of his sins, and so he collapses in death on top of uh, the funeral bier of uh, Elizabeth. And that's how the story ends. We get to see the Pope's staff that the boy stole from Rome and brought back with them, and it has it's a miracle, it's sprouting leaves, you know. So uh, that's kind of the end of the story. And it's kind of interesting, too, from a singing standpoint, I'll tell you, because um, we get to the end, and, you know, you think opera, you always think of these big, dramatic, you know, songs, and Wagner doesn't disappoint uh, to a great degree uh, in the final sequences, uh, the final piece that we have as a finale for Act 3, except that it doesn't end on a high note. You always think of these big operas, and they always end very gloriously, and that's kind of not how this one ends. Uh, it has, and I'll play a little bit of it, but you'll kind of hear, it's almost anticlimactic. Um, but it's kind of interesting. You you know, one of the things that Wagner Without Fear, the author, mentions is he defies you to walk out without humming the little tune that they sing at the end. And it's kind of what we've kind of termed as a kind of a bar hall song. It kind of has that feel to it. Um, when the men come in and sing our rousing chorus, we all sing in unison. The women are singing one melody in unison, and we're singing a counter melody in unison. And, uh, you know, it's just this loud wall of sound, but we don't end on high notes. We actually all end on, you know, very somber, almost anticlimactic notes. So um, I'll play you a little bit of that and you get to hear some of it. But, um, you know, just it's it's kind of interesting that you have this big opera with all this great sound, great chorus, uh, great musical numbers, wonderful singing. And then you can come up with this ending that just kind of peters out at the end. It's kind of just done. And I'll play that for you right now. And then I'll come back and talk a little bit about our staging. Okay, and we're back. And that was about it. It's pretty interesting how it just kind of just rolls off to the end and uh, a few little strings do a little trill back and forth. And that's it. We're done. You know, there's no big, you know, final big basso note uh, chord, you know, at the end of it. It's just kind of, okay, we're done. <laughs> you know, turn the page, close the book, we're done. Um, so that's going to be kind of interesting. I, I'm not quite sure how that's going to play. Maybe, you know, seeing the big curtain come down or something, it'll, it'll give that little period at the end of the sentence that we all will look for in opera. Um, the staging is really interesting. Like I was kind of explaining in act two, when we get all 
bent out of shape and we draw the swords and stuff. The swords do stick. Um, we actually don't get to draw them until we actually talk about moistening our blades with his blood. And that's when we get to draw them. So we actually do draw them. And it is quite tense at that part of the stage. Um, the principles are amazing. Oh, I, I cannot begin to tell you. They are truly, truly world class. I mean, uh, you can tell that Ian Campbell pulled out all the stops for this cast. They're phenomenal. Um, Venus is is amazing amazing singer she has this very rich tone that you just think there's no way it's so rounded and so rich and you there's you just think there's no way she can pull out these really super high notes at the end and she does she does it with ease and you know where a lot of the principals tend to mark uh what's called marking where you actually don't sing at full volume you actually are almost singing in a very light head type type of voice um what, what many women think that when men are can't sing high notes high uh, in full voice, they call it a falsetto. It's kind of the same kind of thing. Um, they do what's called marking, and they kind of just don't sing all out, um, preserving the vocal folds for when they go to sing for the real deal. Um, Venus, on the other hand, Petra Lang, she just goes all out. And boy, does she make that house ring. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Cannot say it enough. Um, I just think she's the best thing since sliced bread with butter on it. And then um, Tannhäuser is truly great. And in fact, it's kind of funny. We had a moment uh, in staging this last week where we were all on backstage. The guys were ready to come on stage. We come out and there was a completely different guy playing Tannhäuser. And it was real confusing to us. I don't know if... Uh, um, the uh, guy who's definitely who's playing it now, uh, Robert Gamble, just had to go home, go back to the hotel room, or something came up. Or, but he was suddenly gone, and we had another guy that was in his place, and we just went, "Great, who's this?" You know, <laughs> you know, it was kind of an interesting moment, and we don't know what was really going on. But the next day, he showed back up again, so uh, all is right with the world. Um, the Langrav is amazing. Uh, you know, think James Earl Jones on steroids. I mean. Uh, this guy, when even when he speaks, the house rumbles. It's pretty amazing. Um, and, you know, usually I'm not big for big basso um, basses like that. They, they, they just, sometimes they get too grovelly. This guy is absolutely clarity personified, and it's just a really nice tone. I really like his singing. And you really buy that he's the Landgraf of, of this whole thing. Um, you know, you can really tell these people are at the top of their game. Um... Camilla, who plays uh, Elizabeth, is just a lovely, lovely person, um, and she's very much uh, every ounce of uh, an Elizabeth that you would expect, uh, given the text and what we have to sing and how she brings her own spin to it, the character. Um, so it's really quite amazing, and, it, and in fact, uh, you might think that in Act 2, it's almost over-the-top Hollywood-esque kind of romanticism when she and Tannhäuser have their moment together in the beginning of Act 2. Uh, it almost reeks of old, golden age uh, movie romance stuff, you know, with the holding of the hands, and the twirling around, and the side-by-side -side pressed faces, you know, and that kind of thing. It's, it's almost giddy, but, you know, the music keeps it pretty much rooted in reality um so act three is uh i call it where the tenors just climb into the rafters and stay there because we go into our higher register and we stay there for probably a good part of that act um Tannhäuser is not easy on the tenors <laughs> um i can see why this show has the uh reputation that it does and you know we're not even the principals we're just the chorus section you know and it's it's tough music it's very tough music um 
and it, we had a comment it was kind of interesting when we sing the great hall song and the men sing the beginning and then the women come in while our alto section is just about as robust as you can get and one our chorus master made the comment and says isn't it always interesting that when the men come back in after hearing the women sing they sound much more like big you know burly men <laughs> than they do before the alto sing you know and it's kind of funny but it's almost true when you hear a sing in the beginning uh, and even though we know that note and we've made corrections for it it you still hear uh, there's a slight difference in our tone when we go from the beginning Freudig to uh, later when we see Volanga. Um, there's just this huge dis- difference, you know, not huge, I, we, we have made corrections, but there's a difference in the sound um, between when we sing the first two parts. So it's kind of interesting, and, and the women do sing in between us, and it almost changes how the men sing right after. Uh, so that part's interesting. Um, I'm going to play a little bit of uh, the um, the highlights, what I call the highlights of uh, Tannhäuser. But I highly suggest you go and see it. It's a wonderful show. Uh, it's very beautiful. Um, the sets are just really stunning. Um, the costumes are going to be great. They're from the Met. Can't get much better than that. Um, and I think that it's going to be a really, really amazing performance. So I highly recommend you go see it. Um, and uh, that'll kind of wrap up this week's show. Um, I will talk a little bit next week as we go into the actual performance, which will start, boy, it's a week from this Saturday coming up. Um, pretty amazing. But yeah, we're kind of coming into the home stretch here and, uh, it's going to be a pretty amazing show. I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing it and going through the paces of actually performing it now. Um, it's going to be quite, quite stunning. I'm sure my mother will be beaming and, you know, ear to ear grin all the way through it. Uh, and I'm sure she'll cry at all the appropriate moments because she tends to be moved by really good music that way. And so, uh, without uh, going too much terribly longer, um, this is Bill, and this is my super title life. Thanks a lot for joining me, and I'll talk to you again next week. Take care. Bye-bye. An orchestra in the hands of an Italian composer is nothing other than a monstrous guitar which he uses to accompany arias. Richard Wagner on Italian Composers. And speaking of Wagner, Auguste Renoir painted a very telling portrait of him though he was no admirer of Wagner's music. After Bayreuth's performance, Renoir was overheard to say, no one has the right to be that boring. My Supertitle Life is a production of Aquagon Media Studios, and its opinions are that of its author and editor, and not of the San Diego Opera or any other organization mentioned in this episode. If you wish to reach Bill at the My Supertitle Life, you can contact him via email at mysupertitlelife at aquagon.com. And that's My Supertitle Life, all one word, M-Y-S-U-P-E-R-T-I-T-L-E-L-I-F-E, at aquagon.com and that's A-K-W-E-K-O-N dot com.